Over the next decade, we face unprecedented challenges in creating sustainable economic, social, and environmental systems that are able to withstand the pressures of a changing world. And we believe that in order to face these challenges, we need infrastructure for good. Welcome to Economist Impact's Infrastructure for Good podcast series. My name is Vaibhav Sago. I'm a principal on the policy and insights team at Economist Impact, and I'll be exploring along with our guest today, how infrastructure can address critical economic, social, and environmental needs. And we lay the foundations on what countries can do to make this vision possible through effective policymaking. This podcast is sponsored by Deloitte and supported by our research partner, Duke University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability. In this episode, we will focus on two of the building blocks that will enable positive infrastructure outcomes, including governance and financing. But before we unpack this, I'd like to quickly introduce you to our experts today. We have David Baxter, Senior Advisor at the International Sustainable Resilience Center. There's Leticia Ferreras, Director of Development Finance at Allianz Global Investors. And finally, Craig Walter, Head of Infrastructure M&A Americas at Deloitte. David, Craig, Leticia, um, could you guys spend a minute or so giving us a little more detail about your professional focus? This is David Baxter. I am a procurement expert as well as a planning expert for infrastructure, and my critical areas of focus are sustainability, resilience, and adaptation for the unknown when it regards um, things that could happen due to climate change and the geopolitical risks and challenges that we are facing in the world today, hence the, the tie into the whole idea of infrastructure for good. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Leticia. I'm an investment professional that is focused on structuring and executing private debt investments in emerging markets. A lot of what I do is essentially fundraising and putting together vehicles that are focused on mobilizing private capital towards emerging markets and across a variety of sectors with the purpose of contributing towards the achievement of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Hi, everyone. Craig Walter. Um, I've spent the last 25 years or so working in the infrastructure industry, uh, largely working with financial investors, investing in, in infrastructure across the globe, um, helping them on assess opportunities and risks in both developed and emerging markets. Um, over the past five years, I've spent a fair bit of time also advising government on incentives and support that they can provide the private sector to help catalyze investment into infrastructure as it pertains to the energy transition. Thanks very much for those introductions. Now moving into the first segment of our discussion, we're going to focus on governance and planning. Some of the key overarching themes include national infrastructure strategies, project level planning, effective public-private collaboration mechanisms, and proper monitoring and evaluation of infrastructure outcomes. David, you've of course worked with governments, businesses, public and private sector to advise on various infrastructure projects and, and even policies. Maybe let's start with an example of a country that has been successful creating an environment that's conducive to building infrastructure for good. What are they doing right? Um, thank you. So the situation is that many countries are facing a choice and they really don't have a choice because their economies are under tremendous pressure due to external factors as well as things like climate change. 
The country that I think most people have heard of that I've been actively involved in is in the Maldives. This is a country that is facing almost an existential crisis. By 2050, if it doesn't get its infrastructure built correctly, sustainably, and resiliently, a lot of the infrastructure and critical infrastructure that is needed could be below water. So um, what they are doing is as sea rising levels become an issue, they're focusing specifically on building infrastructure that does good for the country. They are tying many of their activities to um, their sustainable development goals for their country. And that adds an extra level, I think, of good to what they're doing. Um, they have limited resources, so they're doing the best that they can through governance, improving the institutional capacity of their institutions and government agencies to work very closely at introducing planning, prioritization of projects that's important, and then also accountability. Without accountability and governance, you really don't have governance. So what they're doing is really important is choosing projects that are going to do good, choosing projects that they can afford, doing projects that are going to help them achieve their sustainable development goals. And overall, I think they're doing a pretty good job, which some countries haven't done in the sense of that they're not building vanity projects, but they are building projects that are implementing vulnerable communities and choosing projects that are going to do good for the society as a whole. Just a quick follow-up. Um, and based on your experiences, do we feel like a lot of countries are effectively using the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a reference framework when it comes to national infrastructure planning, or are we not yet there? So in the countries that I've worked in, I've specifically worked on public-private partnerships, PPPs, where they focus very much on building strong partnerships between the public and the private sector. And an element of that, obviously, is you know you want viable projects. And viable projects are projects that a country needs. So in many of the guidance documents that are evolving and many of the constraints or desired outcomes, the sustainable development goals are constantly referenced. What is ironic, I suppose, in many ways, and there's concern that there's a slippage away from it, you know, focus on sustainable development goals, we hear this is that the countries that desperately need to have sustainable development goals are becoming fanatical about implementing them. And then, for example, the wealthy countries, like, for example, the United States, they seem to be ignoring those sustainable development goals objectives. Um, there's nothing that I think is politically sensitive about providing housing for people, providing education, building sustainable infrastructure on that. And it just makes common sense. Otherwise, they're going to have countries that are not going to be sustainable. That's extremely helpful context. Moving on, um, Leticia, in, in your experience with the Allianz Development Finance team, which aspects of governance and planning would you give the most importance to in terms of supporting uh, successful infrastructure for good projects? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think building up on, on what David was talking about, of course, national policies and well-designed um, project pipelines is important and ensuring that you're prioritizing the, the projects that are actually needed and not the the vanity projects he mentioned. Um, but I think maybe taking it up at a project level, it's very important for governments and, and also equity investors and developers to keep in mind different governance aspects that, that, you know, especially on the debt investment side, we would be very focused on. Some of that might be how the project was prioritized and also how the parties that were involved came to be involved in such projects. So 
maybe to give an example, um, we were evaluating a project in West Africa where the contractor that was to build this transportation project was selected as a direct appointment versus part of a competitive process. And, you know, especially when we're talking about emerging markets where there's some concerns around corruption and, and proper governance processes, it is it can potentially be um, a red flag. So that launched us into a full enhanced due diligence, understanding, you know, what this contractor had in terms of special skills to get it chosen for this project, um, understanding what the costs that were quoted for that project were and how that compares to similar projects in the market, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how was it um approved within the government, which ministries were involved. So I think if governments and, and developers take into account these type of governance concerns that, you know, that investors have and that are key to providing financing or equity investments, it makes projects a bit easier uh, or it makes it a bit easier for investors to take a look at them and ideally maybe not have to go into a full blown due diligence process on some aspects of it, if that's already thought about from the very beginning. So I think project prioritization and establishing proper governance and um, and policies is really, really important to ensure that the bankability of these projects is very much there. Just digging a bit deeper, what would you say are some of the deal breakers in terms of risks for, for investors? Yeah, I mean, I think there's many different aspects that we might look at. So I think governance, again, is obviously a, a, a critical one. I think credit risk is another critical one. How are the different um, risks of a project accounted for? So who's building it? Who's operating the project? If we're thinking about a, a specific real asset, um, you know, is the government supportive of it? Does it have the proper, um, you know, permissions, permits? Uh, entitlement? Is it having, of course, a proper impact when we talk about infrastructure for good? How are we measuring such good? And is that going to be, you know, monitored on an overall, you know, ongoing basis, life of the project? The environmental and social aspects are essential as well. Are you displacing any communities? Are you, you know, endangering any um, species? So there's many different aspects that go all the way to ESG, impact, credit, um, governance, that, that need to be taken into account. Of course, this varies slightly across sectors, um, but I think overall we look at many of these different risks when we look at projects to finance. That's very helpful context. Thank you. Moving on, Craig, uh, you've worked to facilitate partnerships on various complex infrastructure transactions. Um, and from your perspective, what sort of governance strategies have proven highly effective, particularly ensuring that these projects are able to generate a genuine, positive social and environmental outcome? Yeah, so a couple of things trying to build on on what David and Leticia are saying. Um, so for one, I think the business case up front is not just a financial business case. There's a, there's a social impact and an environmental impact aspect to the business case that, you know, in some countries we've seen for quite some time, I mean, multiple decades, um, at least the social side of it. And increasingly, we're seeing this in more and more places that this is an explicit part of the business case up front. And that's really important for investors. You know, Leticia talked about it's important that things are being prioritized and there's a there's a desired policy outcome and it fits in with a, a broader national plan. Uh, I agree with all of that. I, th I think investors also generally want to be part of competitive processes because they're more transparent when we think about governance. So when I think, you know, in terms of examples, years ago, I, I lived and worked in, in Chile and when they built out their national road program, uh, there didn't used to be very many highways in Chile. If you, if you visited recently, it's hard to believe. 
but that was all done through innovative PPP arrangements. But one of the things that's often overlooked or not talked about, the government didn't have enough funding or, or money available to pay for both its highway program and its subway program in Metro Santiago. And by, by being able to bring in the private sector to help build out its highway program, it was able to then deploy money into its um, metro build-out program, which brought a lot of uh, access to transportation and jobs for a, a higher percentage of the population. So that system-level thinking, national transportation planning aspect of it was really important, and I think that made it a lot more attractive to the original investors that went into the Chilean road program. Thanks, Craig. David, I believe you wanted to add something. Please go ahead. I think one thing that's also critically important and it ties into everything that Craig and Letitia and what I have said is also managing the perceptions and the expectations. Um, so many times promises are made on things that can't be delivered or things are misunderstood and investors are looking very closely at you know the expectations, the desired outcomes, etc. And this becomes really important in them deciding whether they are even going to you know invest in projects and it's all about perception, perception, perception as well as I'm concerned because it's all tied to perception of risk. And what's fascinating, which I'm seeing, is that in certain countries that don't manage this, their projects are, for example, just not becoming um, insurable because if they're not going to manage the risks, the big in, you know, the insurance companies are not going to um, insure those projects. And without insurance and without that risk management or perception of risk management, those projects are going to be dead in the water even before they start. Right. I think that actually gives us a really good segue into the discussion on financing. Again, some of the overarching themes from our research under financing um, were, of course, attracting private capital, focusing on social and environmental good, improving project bankability, financial sustainability, and social KPIs for performance monitoring, evaluation, etc. Leticia, starting with you here, at a high level, what can countries do to attract financing for infrastructure focused on environmental and social good? And how can they make some of these projects more bankable, you know, in terms of raising debt? I think in terms of attracting capital or foreign direct investment, you know, it's a lot of what we talked about in terms of policy. Um, but I think when it comes to talking about a project being bankable or how to make it sustainable, in terms of being able to have um, financing associated with it on a standalone basis. It's about being able to structure around the different risks that I mentioned earlier. So whether it's a project can potentially um, enhance and in having an investment grade off taker, um, being able to tie and have like very high quality experience parties involved as part of it. But I think overall, it's also important to take into consideration that in many, especially, you know, developing our frontier markets, it is very hard to structure a perfectly bankable project, especially when we talk about on a standalone basis, so kind of a project finance type of asset financing. So when it comes to that, the issues is really related to investor appetite. And I think some of it is to David's point about perception, but others is that the majority of, of off-takers of the users of, um, of that infrastructure would be sub-investment grade. And in many cases, investors don't have appetite for that type of risk. And as a result, some of what we've seen as alternatives is, on the one hand, more sovereign financing. So the sovereign taking on um, certain debt obligations, but committing to using the proceeds of such financing for the building of a certain project. And we've seen that quite a bit across various countries in Africa. 
Of course, that has certain consequences in terms of, you know, debt sustainability analysis, the sovereign taking on most likely additional hard currency debt. So it doesn't come without its challenges, but we have seen that it's been effective, especially when we think about projects that might be too small also to be um, financed on a standalone basis. And I think um, another another helpful way of, of making a project bankable is actually going to David's point on insurance. We see that a lot of multilaterals um, are very active in terms of providing guarantees or credit enhancement mechanisms. And I think that's essential in many countries where there's no way, even if you have a perfectly structured project, there's no way to mitigate the risks to the point that investors have appetite for it. And things like credit guarantees can really mobilize significant amounts of um, private capital. And we've also seen that across Central America and most recently in renewable development in, in East Africa. In some of my recent weekend reading, one of the key trends that's come out seems to be a huge increase in the amount of uninvested capital, particularly capital focused on infrastructure. So in your mind, what does this reflect? Is it just a lack of good projects? I mean, I think it's a combination. There's a lot of discussion around project pipeline and project creation. How, who's responsible? How can be, it be done more efficiently? And also part of the reason is that there is limited appetite for what is called development capital. So who's actually putting the capital up front to see if a project is even viable, right? So I think that in itself creates pipeline constraints. I think some of it is also that, that sorry to go back to the point, but perception of risk versus actual risk. And there's a lot of commitments from investors, but ultimately you also do have to get comfortable with the risks that are embedded in some of the infrastructure projects. And again, especially when we think about emerging markets. So it's a combination between project creation and a bit of a disconnect between the actual risk appetite of investors and the perception of the risk that they have and then the actual risk that is embedded in some of these in some of these projects. Craig, being very involved in a similar line of work, do you want to add some of uh, add to some of the great points that Leticia just mentioned? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I, I call it the infrastructure funding paradox because there is uh, hundreds of billions, if not a trillion dollars of capital available to invest in investable projects. Um, yet we seem to have this gap. It's not just an issue in frontier or, or emerging or developing markets, whatever we want to call them. Um, we see it here in Canada as well. Um, investors have an obligation of fiduciary responsibility you know, to their stakeholders. If it's a pension plan, for instance, or an insurance company, they need to to earn the appropriate risk-adjusted returns. And so they're looking for projects that have, you know, revenue streams that they feel comfortable investing in it. Um, often those projects don't exist in, in a market like Canada, for instance. Um, they may be projects that don't have revenue streams associated with them. So they're more classical PPPs with a government-backed availability payment. They might not be big enough, whatever it happens to be. So I, I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement with the people on the side of the funds and the people on the side of the projects to be working more uh, cohesively and creatively and trying to figure out ways to structure things that might attract financing. I also think this is where prioritization at a national or a subnational level in the, in the case of some of the larger countries becomes quite important because if you're prioritizing your infrastructure properly, you should also be able to attach funding strategies to it and understand what might more logically attract private sector funding and financing. 
versus what is more likely going to need to be funded by government uh, sources or taxpayer funding, if you will. That's extremely helpful context and guidance. I think hand-in-hand is a discussion about key performance indicators or metrics, uh, the importance of gathering and then utilizing this data and bringing it back to inform your national infrastructure strategy plans. So David, how important are these KPIs? Do we think they're being tracked appropriately, effectively? What are some of the most important facets of gathering the right data and utilizing it to build infrastructure for good? Interesting enough, I'm working on a, a, a project for the Asian Development Bank, and it's looking at um, building a desperately needed inland container depot in a country I won't mention. And the big focus that um, you know on the, the the procurement feasibility of the project and understanding whether it is a viable project, bankable, you know, all these things we've been talking about, has been on identifying very clear KPIs. And every project we have to remember is different. So you can't work with just a stock of typical KPIs. You have to really dig deep. But what we've identified is often that the information needed to determine which KPIs is often lacking or not there. And so it's maybe a borrow Craig's work. It's, it's a bit of a paradox. You know, we want to make decisions and have KPIs that are based on informed decisions, but that ability to make those informed decisions isn't always there. And so, you know, it's really important, I think, if you're developing KPIs, is don't come from a outside a country and try and tell the country what they are specifically, but listen to the people on the ground and let them tell you what they know. You know, we so, you know, often just come from top down instead of going from grassroots upwards. And so we should be listening to that, especially if, you know, looking at infrastructure for good or vulnerable communities. Um, the KPI requirements also vary. You know, one of the interesting things that I've found is, for example, impact investors are trying to work on projects that are going to improve people and improve communities might have a completely different sense of what the important KPIs are. So they might focus on, you know, how many women are we lifting out of poverty? You know, what are we going to do to improve diversification of the economy? You know, what accesses are we going to get to utilities that are needed, for example? And, um, one thing that I, it's a little divergent from your question, but what I did want to point out is that when we're doing infrastructure for good, we shouldn't confuse it with philanthropy. Philanthropy, in the sense, relies on the, the good feelings of a, let's call it a, a socially conscious investor, but it's the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year, and when they get tired of the project and they move off and they stop providing that sort of investment or putting in the, the, the necessary investments those projects fail. So we really have to look at building sustainable and resilient investing practices. And that can also be one of the KPIs. And just a final comment is, you know, I think investors, different types of investors, as Craig mentioned, you know, for example, pension funds and that have different timelines. And so are they very focused on short-term quick returns or are they focused on long-term returns, which is going to play a, a very big role, and especially if you're building infrastructure for good, you have to look at the long term. It's not a short term, one year, two year fix. Fantastic, David. Patricia, in your experience, how important are some of these KPIs? And what exactly are you prioritizing? Yeah, I wanted to add to David's point because I, I do very much agree that, you know, it is hard to put the same KPIs across projects, across sectors and across countries even. Um, 
I think one one caveat to that is that, especially around Europe or in Europe, there's new European regulations that are essentially establishing, in fact, KPIs that need to be consistently collected across sectors and, and countries. And, um, you know, it's not a perfect answer. I, I would say that this is probably one of the biggest challenges that, that we face now um, in terms of being able to collect consistent data across projects and, and jurisdictions that are so different from each other. So even though from an investor perspective, I think it's quite you know easy to explain that, look, you know we, are, we might not be supporting any women-owned MSMEs in this specific project because of the nature of the financing. And yet, you know, it might be an impact indicator that could be required as part of a specific regulation um, or things like GHG emissions, so scope one and two, those tend to be requested. And while we see that, that is generally measured across projects, and I definitely understand the importance of it. Um, I think being able to collect that kind of data and again, keeping it consistent across is one of the one of the biggest um, issues that we're facing. And yet again, it, it's a regulation point is no longer what investors want, but what we need to comply with. So I wouldn't say that, you know, that's the only KPI that we look at. I think ultimately we do have our own impact frameworks and depending on on the investment that we're making, we might look at one kind of indicator or another. But keeping in mind the regulation, which is especially strong across Europe, um, is an important one and, and one that will also establish how much capital can be catalyzed from European investors towards infrastructure. Thanks, Leticia. I think one other key question is, and uh, Craig, let's start with you here. In your experience, have you come across any financial tools or instruments? Just throwing a couple examples out there, such as green bonds, or performance-linked loans that you feel have shown a lot of promise in terms of improving uh, sustainable infrastructure outcomes? Again, I, I think I'll, I'll lean on my experience in Chile and maybe a couple of thoughts. So one, when the Chileans built out their road program, they embedded a financial return linked to road safety metrics. So it was the concessionaire's responsibility to maintain a safe road. And that was because they had an unacceptably high number of uh, road fatalities in the country. So that was a direct financial link to the performance of the road on a safety metric. You could comfortably see that applied in you know different environmental or other other social progress indicators uh, directly into contracts. Any number of situations going forward, but I think it's a good clear example of how a non-financial metric can be converted into financial performance. Another example from Chile, and, and when I lived there in the, the late 90s, I worked in the telecommunications industry. And when they awarded mobile licenses or spectrum licenses, there was a financial bid, and then there were points scored based on two other metrics. One was the speed of your build-out, and the second was the percentage of the country you were covering. And so there was a, an explicit speed to access to communications and breadth of access or coverage of the country to communications that was scored is an important part of who was winning the concessions. Now, there may have been three or four people competing for them or three or four companies competing for them, but they had to outdo one another to make sure that everybody in the country was getting access and on a timely basis. And so, you know, the implicit metric in the award of the um, spectrum was that coverage. And I think, again, we could apply that type of thinking to other infrastructure scenarios going forward. Thanks very much, Craig. I think that brings us towards the end of this discussion, but I wanted to give you all a minute to share any closing thoughts at all. David, maybe you want to get us started here? 
Thank you. So I think just a, a wish list, if you want to call it, we need strong enabling environments. We need to be competitive and transparent in our procurements so that the best innovation and the best um, value for money can be um, achieved through those procurements. I think, um, as Letitia mentioned, ESG requirements are now becoming more and more required. And actually, even the EU is, it's not even a, a choice anymore. It's, an, it's a requirement, you know, to have these KPIs that are tied also to accountability. And then I think the, the, the final comment that I'd make is, you know, moving from vanity projects to real projects that are going to impact countries and moving mainly from maybe utopian ideas, which are good, but also now focusing on ideas that are economically and commercially viable investments, because those are the types of projects that I'm going to be invested in. Really interesting. Leticia, what are you saying? Yeah, from my from my side, um, I think building infrastructure for good is, of course, very important to do across the globe. But I think it is particularly important in emerging and, and developing countries. And um, that's because, you know, some infrastructure that we consider basic in, you know, Western Europe can really have a significant impact in providing clean water, safe transportation, or basic healthcare to large communities and in these other countries. So I think from that perspective, um, it is very important to continue increasing the partnerships between the public sector and the private sector in ways, um, you know, as we do blended finance becomes really, really important and quite catalytic when it comes to mobilizing significant capital towards emerging markets and really being able to achieve that sustainable future for all. Thank you. And Craig, your closing thoughts, please. Uh, great points from David and Leticia. I, I, I think underscoring this point around partnership between the private sector and the public sector and linking that back to the whole exercise of thinking of infrastructure as a broader system, not a single project, and prioritizing within that system so you know where it's practical to have government financing, where it's practical to involve the private sector, where multilaterals or other you know, international partnerships might make sense. I think that's really important. And the last point I would make is there's a lot of really interesting ways of getting infrastructure built happening all over the world at the national and subnational level. The more information we have available on where this creativity is happening, the more we can beg, borrow, and steal from other markets to get things done effectively in, in whatever markets we're working in. That brings us to the end of this wonderful discussion today. Thanks very much to our experts, David Craig and Leticia. And listeners, please stay tuned for the next podcast episode where we'll explore more about infrastructure for good. Thanks again to Deloitte, our sponsors, and to our research partners, UQ University's Nicholas Institute for Energy, Environment and Sustainability. If you'd like more information about the Infrastructure for Good initiative, please visit infrastructureforgood at impact.economist.com. Thank you.